Good morning and thank you for joining us for episode 5 of our podcast where we're going to be looking at two kinds of rest. Our introductory question is this. If you had one week of vacation to recharge your physical and emotional batteries, where would you go to rest, relax, and get rejuvenated? I want you to close your eyes and imagine that place. For many of us, it might be a Florida beach. It might be a family farm. It could even be a warm cup of coffee or listening to your favorite indie acoustic record. It could be hanging out on Netflix for a few hours or traveling with your family in a car going to your favorite restaurants. So today, let's discuss the concept of biblical rest. In fact, the Bible talks a whole lot about rest. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 from the message paraphrase asks us this question. Are you tired? Are you worn out or burned out? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you just how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live free and light. Psalm 46 verse 10 tells us this as well, to be still and know that he is God. Psalm 23 also brings people comfort as it is read at virtually every funeral service. At my great-grandfather and grandmother's funeral this past month, these words were read. The Lord is my shepherd, and I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows, and he leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. I think the truth is that we all know these verses really well. They bring us peace. But I would also venture to say that when we are given opportunities to rest, we simply don't take them. Our society is not moving in a way towards rest. It is moving towards busyness, and this can easily be proven. Many of us today have phones, especially iPhones, and in the iStore, there is a section called Productivity. These apps are designed to make our lives more efficient and easier to manage, but truly how many of them really help? We are to the point that we use apps to schedule our lives because they are so busy. But maybe you're like me and you find these apps really annoying as it's just one more thing to do. All this to say that it brings us to our first point today. I believe that there are two kinds of rest. Differences in rest can be found in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice the word rest is mentioned twice. Many times I thought it was repeated because it must mean the same thing, or just because it's an important idea that the author is trying to get across. But by the kinds of rest here are different because the Greek meanings of the word are different. The first rest means to be weary and burdened. It refers to being a sinner. That rest has been freely given to us, and the first rest is obtained by coming to Christ at the moment of our conversion. In other words, our first rest comes at the moment of salvation. Do you remember how you felt when God cleansed your heart for the very first time? Remember the freedom and excitement that you felt? This is the first rest. 
The second rest, though, is a much different one. The second rest is often called holiness or maybe even sanctification or full salvation. This rest is promised to us. You see, the second rest is found while the first is given. A gift is one thing, but something else found unexpected is another. The passage teaches us that while people are in the service of God, the second rest is suddenly realized or even found. How is this rest obtained, you might ask? Is it obtained by consecration and faith? I believe it is. Our consecration effort is completed by two tasks. One, taking upon the yoke of Christ, and two, changing our mind and behavior are the steps. That Jesus invited the disciples, and he invites us today, to come to him, and he will give us rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And that's directly out of Matthew chapter 11. This word picture actually is a pretty incredible one. The yoke of Jesus' day was a fitted collar-like frame shaped to rest on the neck and shoulders of two animals. Teamed together, the task was far easier for two oxen than for one. And if one were a young ox, it would have been much easier to have an older, stronger companion to share the burden. To men who called for God's kingdom to reign over them, Jesus offered to be God's servant. And it's interesting that he's yoked in harness with them, as he does with us. Today, taking up the yoke links us to Jesus, and he often can carry it whenever it becomes too much for us to handle. We walk beside him. We learn from him because he is our older, stronger, and more powerful companion. This is the first step in the consecration process, that we need to be yoked with Christ. We need to accept the fact that we need to be yoked and we can't do it alone. The second step, though, is a very difficult one. We have to change our mind and behavior. This can be summed up, I believe, in marriage. What if you only change your mind but not your behavior in marriage? Bad things are soon to happen. For instance, when I married my wife, I had to change my mind because I had the mind of a bachelor. My habits were shaped by my singleness. I had bachelor attitudes about time and money, about the best car to drive, and about how to manage a family. It all had to go through a dramatic shift. You want to have to change your mind. Our relationship with Christ works in the same way, and it affects our resting in Him. According to the Apostle Paul, sin's fortress can be found in our mind. This is also found in Colossians 1.21. So God in Christ and Christ through the Holy Spirit can change our mind. Remember, it is through Scripture that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. First Peter tells us to prepare our minds for action. Changing our attitudes and behaviors can happen in this way. There's a great illustration of this. Maybe you've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind. It's about a brilliant mathematician named John Nash who, despite his schizophrenia, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1994 for his original contribution to mathematics. John inhabits a world that actually doesn't exist. His closest friend, his friend's lovely niece, the CIA director who employs him in dangerous operations, are all figments of his broken mind. When John is first diagnosed with the disease, he is treated with medication. 
This helps his delusions, but it also stifles his personality. He becomes, in essence, a hollow man. But gradually, through John's wife's immense patience and sacrifice, he learns to live with his disease. How does he do this? He simply changes his mind and has a great support system. The reality is we have to do this with our relationship with God. This is how we receive rest. I think the issue with changing our minds is it has to do with imitating God versus trying to be God. We mirror divine behaviors only to freshly discover that we're very limited in our humanness. Resting in the Lord involves a recognition of our own weakness and our smallness, that we are made by dust, and that we hold treasure in jars of clay, and that without proper care we break. But this isn't true of God. God doesn't sleep or slumber. He runs no risk of breakdown or burnout or exhaustion or injury. God doesn't need a Sabbath or a sabbatical. He doesn't put in furlough requests. We require a good night's rest to clear our head, but God doesn't. God is not waiting for the weekend. God is complete without rest, but not us. Unfortunately, many of us see rest as indispensable. So God, knowing our need and our folly, he took the example and the lead. Like a parent who coaxes a cranky toddler to lie down for a nap, God woos us into rest by resting himself. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in it, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and he made it holy. So what are we to do with this? If you get this straight, you will have it. The rest of God, the rest God gladly gives to us so that we might discover a part of God maybe that we were missing. And it is not a reward for finishing. It is not a bonus for work well done. It's just simply a gift. It is a stop work order in the midst of work that's never done, never polished. This is called Sabbath. So Sabbath is important. It is so important, in fact, that it's a commandment. So today, let's begin this busy season by resting in the Lord. Let's stop and enjoy the rest God realized that our personal relationship with you is more important than relationships and priorities with everything else. Sabbath always begins with faith and consecration. And let's look at this Sabbath liturgy to prove this point. It's called Taking Thoughts Captive. I want you to imagine Solomon submitting the Proverbs to a modern publisher, and this is the response that he gets. Dear Solomon, thanks for the opportunity to glance over your recent submission. We love your dad's book and continue to be humbled and amazed by how many people that it's blessed. But there's some stuff about your book. It does have some great things, some real gems of insight. My four-year-old really loved the one about the dog's vomit though I'm not sure something like this would make the final cut. I also appreciate your ability to cover a wide range of topics with brevity. You explore everything from domestic squabbles to international politics to corporate strategy, and so succinctly, though I admit sometimes it is a little cryptic. But I need to be frank with you, Saul. This is an editorial nightmare. It's all over the place. One minute you're talking about nattering wives and the next to king's heart, and then suddenly you're on about table manners, lazy people, 
poor people, I mean whatever. You repeat yourself in many places, contradict yourself in others. I'm intrigued but confused. I wish you would take one theme per chapter and develop it fully. I'm not saying I won't publish this, but I am asking this. Sum up the whole book in one clear sentence. I am talking about a thesis statement here, Saul, just like in your college days. If we can nail that, I think we can build a good book from there. Say hi to the wives and concubines and kids, and congratulations on your recent marriages last month. Kindest regards, friendly publisher. Oh, P.S., I should have mentioned this. I like the title Proverbs, but it is kind of pedestrian. I'm thinking something catchier like zingers, one-liners to delight your friends and humiliate your enemies. What do you think? And maybe this would be Solomon's response. Dear Friendly Publisher, I thought about your critique and request, and I thought that you missed the entire point of my book, as my book is purposely disorganized. Hint, it mimics life. I at least want to give you the book, and I want to give you one clear sentence that sums up the entire work. I simply lifted it straight out of my book, and here it is. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. I hope that helps. Solomon. P.S. I prefer my original title. And I think that that sometimes how we see life and Sabbath. That somehow Sabbath makes our lives organized, but really the point of Sabbath is to deal with the disorganization and the hurts of life and to give us a rest from those things so we can rest in Him. I hope that this has brought you encouragement today, so may you experience the holy leisure and rest of God.